Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has a lot of feelings about the Delia's styles being made by Dolls Kill. And if everything I just said to you means absolutely nothing, <laughs> don't worry, we're going to talk about it today. Um, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 172. I'm back from an awesome week in Mexico City. It was great. It was just what I needed. The trip wasn't without its own bits of chaos. For one, on my birthday, an entire restaurant sang happy birthday to me while I was alone at a table. It was pretty mortifying. Basically, we went to this Hello Kitty restaurant. Of course we did, right? Just for a little like snack, coffee, you know, pastry kind of thing on my birthday. I really wanted to have a fancy dessert. Um it was so weird. You know, I made the reservation quite a bit in advance. Um, it was really cute inside, actually, uh, really well put together. But the service was a nightmare. Like, we waited 30 minutes for someone to finally come and acknowledge us. We waited another half an hour to get our drinks. Um, I ended up not ordering dessert because I thought I would get it later. And first I ordered a salad, which was basically in line with the kind of salad you might buy at the airport. Um, then Dustin went to use the bathroom. There was this weird thing going on there where they were just like constantly cleaning the bathrooms. And so if you went to use the bathroom, you might have to wait five, 10, 15 minutes to get in there. I guess I don't want to know why they had to clean the bathroom so much. Anyway, Dustin was gone for a really long time. And all of a sudden, all these waiters and other people came over and sang happy birthday to me while I was sitting there alone. It was really embarrassing. Uh, then Dustin came back and I was so mortified. I was like, let's just leave. So I never got to have my birthday dessert, which is a bummer. And I still haven't had it. Perhaps the right dessert will cross my path soon. Um, the other thing that happened, which you may have seen on Instagram or TikTok, is that I accidentally drank vinegar because I was too lazy or distracted at the grocery store to read the label on a bottle. I have very strong Spanish reading, writing, and speaking skills. I studied it for a very long time in school and then afterwards. And that's one of the reasons I love going to Mexico City is I get to speak Spanish all week. And I can certainly understand labels on products if I take the time to read them. So we were at the grocery store. We grabbed a huge bottle of water that would last us a couple days. Um, we took it home. That night, you know, every night before I go to bed, I like to take magnesium. Actually, my doctor put me on this a couple years ago, and it really helps me with my insomnia. I sort of just like melt into sleep every night. So I get my magnesium. I pour myself a glass of cold, refreshing water from that new bottle of water. And I put the capsules of, you know, the magnesium in my mouth, and I toss back a bunch of water. Or I don't because it's vinegar. And it took my brain, I don't know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds to realize what was going on. I realized it wasn't water because I had this very strong burning sensation in my throat. I couldn't exactly smell the vinegar. I think it was just too saturated. And I'd just taken a shower, so I probably was smelling like conditioner and stuff. And then I had this realization that it was vinegar and I spit the remainder that was left in my mouth in the sink and read the bottle. And of course it said white vinegar and it was, yeah, pretty embarrassing. Uh, 
embarrassing because, you know, it's vinegar and I, it was very obviously vinegar on the label. Um, embarrassing because I had a sore throat the next day. Embarrassing because I don't want to be an embarrassing American. <laughs> and also I was upset. We wasted this plastic bottle of vinegar, you know, and I get really hard on myself about things like that. But you know what? Sometimes we're going to drink vinegar. Sometimes we're going to mess up and we're going to learn from that. I'll never buy anything without reading the label ever again and we'll be better for what happened, right? But it is, it is still very embarrassing. Um, and my throat finally feels better, but it took a couple of days. It was not, not a good thing. Don't, don't drink pure white vinegar, no matter what anyone tells you. So yeah, I'm back. I'm back home. Uh, I still think salt and vinegar is the best flavor of potato chips. And uh, today we'll be getting into part two of my conversation with Danielle Vermeer, the co-founder and CEO of Teleport. Teleport is a next-gen thrifting app to discover, buy, and sell from outfit videos. And Danielle and I will be talking all about greenwashing, psyops. Yes, stuff's going to get really serious around here. And we're going to talk about, and we're going to dissect, discuss the online conversations around secondhand shopping. So you know there's a lot to cover there. And we're going to talk about so much more, even beyond that. But before we get into that, in the last episode, I promised that this week I would give more background about two fast fashion brands that are thriving in this new and scary era of ultra-fast fashion, Timu and Dolls Kill. This week, we're only going to focus on Dolls Kill, and I'll dig into Timu next week. There's just too much to talk about with both of them. So let's get started with Dolls Kill. If you don't know this brand at all, don't feel bad. It has a much more niche brand presence and customer base than, say, Shein. And in fact, that niche brand presence is a big part of what's happening with that business and even maybe challenges that that business faces. The Dolls Kill About page on its website says a lot about itself as a brand while sharing very little words and lots of pictures. Seriously, go look at it and you'll be like, oh, this is what they sell. Okay. But you won't know much about what they actually do. In fact, the total text for that page is one quote from the founder, Shadi Lin, that's her name. And then the words, we are back of the class and front of the club. Most about pages will talk about brand origins, brand values, maybe talk about its approach to ethics and sustainability, how it feels about its customers, that kind of stuff. But Dolls Kill has been able to get away with, well, mostly get away with, not talking about that stuff for years now. Dolls Kill positions itself as the brand for misfits and outsiders. And while I do think... That is where it began as a place for goths and ravers and hyper-feminine kawaii lovers, a place where they could find clothes, bags, shoes, makeup. Kind of a big deal when the only place that was kind of serving them at all was Hot Topic. Over the past few years, Dolls Kill has become more focused on collabs. And I say that with really heavy air quotes because they're really more like licensing deals than an actual collaboration with a brand or a designer, right? These are actually just licensed properties like Delia's. So 
they got the license for Delia's, gosh, at this point, it has to be like four years ago-ish. Um, it's been a little confusing, I think, for some customers who think this is really Delia's product, but really it is just Dolls Kill making stuff and putting the Delia's label on it. So yeah, Delia's, Care Bears, once again, they don't own Care Bears as a property, right? And they're not collaborating with I don't know, tender heart over there or something. They're just, you know, using the property on things that they make. Also, Strawberry Shortcake, Scooby-Doo, I think Rick and Morty, and most recently, the game Candyland. The Candyland one makes me kind of laugh, um, which is not to say that Candyland doesn't have amazing aesthetic. And as a kid, I just loved staring at the board and making up stories about it. Um, please tell me I'm not the only one. <laughs> In fact, I wish I just had a Candyland board of that era to hang on my wall because it would be very, very visually inspiring. And you know what? Now I'm going to keep my eye out for one for sure. But so I've been laughing about this Candyland collab. It's really not. It's like a licensing situation, right? Because Dustin and I have been joking for weeks about how movie studios are going to start making films based on board games now that Barbie has been so successful. Like, and I'm, I don't want this to be true, but I know it's at least partially true. You know, execs are saying, oh, people want movies about toys, right? That's why Barbie is so successful rather than people want films made by women or who speak to different audiences or speak about different topics. No, no, no. They want movies about games, right? <laughs> they want movies about toys and games, right? So I've been just like laughing to myself as we've talked about this, thinking of like ridiculous games and what the movies would be that would tie into them, like Hungry Hungry Hippos or Connect Four. I have heard a Battleship movie has been in the works for quite a while. What about the Uno movie? Like what's going to happen there? Anyway, when you start to think about a whole movie built around a game, it's pretty hilarious. But actually, a, a movie about Candyland? I'd probably watch that one. <laughs> anyway, so they've been expanding Dolls Kill, that is, not movie studios, into licensing, right? And I see this expansion into licensing as a function of a few things that are at the core of Dolls Kill and its sort of brand quandary. To understand the brand quandary, you have to get started with how Dolls Kill began. And I'm going to read this directly from Rachel Monroe's excellent piece for The Atlantic, Ultra Fast Fashion is Eating the World. I discussed this article in the last episode. I shared it in the show notes there. I will do the same again. Monroe writes, Dolls Kills founders Shouty Lin and Bobby Farahi met at a rave. She was a DJ. He had recently sold his media company and was partying. He later told Inc. Magazine, and parting his quotes here, by the way, Farahi was impressed with Lynn's fashion sense and business acumen. She would buy something cute on eBay for $5, then turn around and sell it for $100. She looked for items that were hard to find, that were viral in nature, items that made people say, hey, where did you get that? Farahi said. Lynn and Farahi began dating and launched an online boutique in 2012. Lynn chose the name Dolls Kill because she liked the way the words sounded together. One soft, 
one hard. At first, they imagined that Dolls Kill would be a niche brand, popular mostly with club kids. But then something started to shift. The Burning Man aesthetic was creeping into the workaday world. Festival culture went mainstream. Word began to circulate. If you want your outfit of the day to be colorful and weird and stand out on social media, Dolls Kill was a good place to shop. So let's let's just dissect some of the highlights of that paragraph, right? One, Shoddy Lynn has this this business acumen for taking things that are very inexpensive and turning a massive profit on them because they are sort of viral in nature, right? They're going to catch people's eye immediately and they will pay any price to have them. They imagined in the beginning that Dolls Kill would be a particularly niche brand because it focused on sort of rave club wear, that kind of stuff. But they happened to start it at just the right time where this kind of like festival wear idea was picking up so much momentum. And this was at the same time I was working at Nasty Gal. And this is where we really saw festival fashion become this massive thing. Like this is Coachella being a household name and seeing celebrities Coachella outfits becoming like a pastime, right? And so the more costumey, the more extreme and unique, the better. This is what Dolls Kill launches into. So yes, they're selling this very niche product, but it's this idea that is having a moment. And I'll say as someone who has been working in fashion for a long time, has seen a lot of trends come and go, who is very obsessed with how fashion, retail, product trends tie into social trends, we have seen a shift in the trend around festival wear. You know, in the early days of Dolls Kill, once again, when I was at Nasty Gal, we really saw it being a lot more over the top, very novel. But I think... We've changed as people since then. I think the pandemic really changed what festivals are and who attends them. And when we look at Coachella from the past year, it was a lot more, and it's all relative, of course, understated in comparison to that pre-pandemic festival look, right? So naturally, Dolls Kill would probably be seeing a shift in their business as well. But we go back, go back again to that Coachella is blowing up. Festival is a really big deal. More festivals are emerging era. That period around 2014, really extending through 2019. During that period, there was a lot of spin around Dolls Kill in the business media world. Because here was this brand with a super niche customer base of festival goers, ravers, goths, and outsiders that was probably because of the fashion and social trends of that time period posing a threat to every retailer out there. I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but that was the story out there, right? The narrative. And allegedly... Dolls Kill was consistently profitable from the very beginning, which I do believe, but I also believe that profitability may 
have only been in the early years, not later. I suspect that is not the case now for many, many reasons, and we'll get into a few of them. But at that time, it was certainly an appealing investment. Here we are. This brand is riding, maybe not even riding, leading this wave of a whole social and fashion trend rolled into one, right? And they are profitable at a time where many other big online retailers, I'm looking at Nasty Gal, I'm looking at ModCloth, there are so many more, were not profitable. And in fact, were losing money quarter after quarter after quarter. So Doll's Kill is like a unicorn, In 2014, Doll's Kill received $5 million in an initial round of investment funding. $5 million sounds like a lot of money, and yes, I would definitely take it, but it's not like that much money in the world of retail and investment. But five years later in 2019, Doll's Kill raised another $40 million in investment as more people thought that it had the potential to be a generation-defining brand. Now, I'll tell you this. I saw their fundraising deck during that period. This, if you're not familiar with the fundraising deck, would be the information that they shared with potential investors in hopes of attracting them. So it would be filled with future sales projections for the business, lots of photos, like lots of brand imagery and information about the brand. Like you sort of, when you are appealing to an investor, right? You want to both appeal to their sense of imagination, which would be showing a lot of what the brand is, but also their sense of making a lot of money down the road, right? And I found their fundraising deck to be the most as the kids say, uh, Delulu thing I've seen in my career. And I've worked for some brands who had similarly unrealistic ideas about the future trajectory of their business. It was wild. One thing that the deck claimed that sticks with me even now is that the business planned on hitting $1 billion in annual revenue in 10 years. My friend Sherry and I laughed a lot about that at the time because URBN, which is a massive company that includes free people, anthropology, and urban outfitters, took about 30 years to cross the 1 billion in annual sales mark. It's it's not an easy hill to climb. And that's a company with many, many stores a wider base of customers in terms of age, aesthetic, and location. How would Dolls Kill get there without some major shifts, right? And in a short period of time. It's hard to get a firm grasp of how much Dolls Kill did in sales last year, but it seems like it's just over 100 million. I found all kinds of numbers on the internet. It might be as high as like 120 It's not a tiny drop in the bucket, and lots of places I've worked have really struggled to get over that $100 million mark, but it's not $1 billion either. Here's the thing. When you promise investors a billion dollars in sales each year, when you bring in the kind of investment that's looking for that, you're committing to exponential growth year after year after year. 
You might remember how much we discussed that in the series about Etsy, how investment means constant aggressive growth and profitability. And as Etsy has demonstrated, it's hard to get to that level of sales and profitability without rapidly expanding your customer base and really changing the way you do business across the board. We've certainly seen that with Etsy. So many shifts over the years that have really led to Etsy allowing a lot of drop shippers on their platform, right? And kind of, in many ways, perhaps eroding the trust of its original customer base in the first place, right? Dolls Kill made a lot of immediate changes when the investment money came in. In the beginning, it primarily carried small cult brands. That kind of business, I am sorry to say, will never scale to a highly profitable billion-dollar brand because you won't be able to get enough inventory from small brands, and it won't be as profitable. Of course, the question to be raised there is, do you need to have a billion-dollar company in the first place? No, right? So there's all kinds of stuff going on here anyway that I don't agree with, but I do, you know, if I just put on my buyer hat, I'm like, oh yeah, you have to make major changes to what you sell in order to deliver what these investors are gonna want. So Dolls Kill began to make more and more of its own private label product, creating its own in-house brands. And this product had to be super profitable. So the quality wasn't that great, you know? Um, that's kind of an understatement. The few things I've bought in my life from Dolls Kill were abysmal, like shockingly bad quality. The thing with this kind of promised growth is you won't ever get there without churning out a lot more product and offering your customer as much new stuff as possible as often as possible. Because that's the thing about turning the brand for misfits into a billion dollar company. Your customer base is a lot smaller, so you better be getting your customers shop there all the time, like at least once a week. Furthermore, when your brand focuses on festival wear as a year-round way of life, your customer ages out. So you need to get as much of their money as possible before they move on. And you do that by constant newness, aggressive marketing, and a steady array of deals, 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 right? Over time, we saw Dolls Kill offering more and more sales, more special collections, and just so much stuff. Their customer, however, is younger, right? And therefore does have price resistance, as in they have a budget. And so Dolls Kill had to balance this steady array of new products and offering all of these deals to get people to come back and shop again with increasing profitability, right? This, this whole package is what's gonna make investors happy and customers happy. So what did they do? Of course, the product quality just continued to get worse and worse. And that's a problem we're gonna touch on in a few as well. But I will say, when they did the first launch of the first round of Delia's product, I bought a few things and I was shocked just how bad the stuff was. Unwearable, malfunctioning zippers before you even took the item out of the packaging. 
already just so damaged just from the shipping process. This is not a good thing, right? This is not a good thing for your business. And you know what? I never bought anything from them again. Put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that as well. With this steady stream of new product comes something we hear happening over and over again when we talk about Shein or Zara or Forever 21 or Urban Outfitters or any other fast fashion brand. We start to see accusations of copied and stolen designs. I'll share some articles about these stories in the show notes, but one is particularly egregious with the founder, Shadi Lin, paying a designer a couple hundred bucks to design and make a Halloween costume for her, then blatantly knocking it off on the Dolls Kill website. We also see a lot of really ill-advised product, that's me being diplomatic, flooding the site from disgusting examples of cultural appropriation to racist imagery. It's pretty gross. But when you're trying to sell as much stuff as possible, and that means a steady stream of new, 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 and more new, well, you're bound to make a lot of missteps because you don't even have time or even a big enough staff to thoughtfully create product. So you copy shit, right? You don't take the time to consider the implications of each thing you buy. That's the fast fashion way. That is definitely the ultra fast fashion way, as we discussed in the last episode when we talked about Shein. I will take a moment here to say that some of the most toxic people I knew that I worked with at Nasty Gal ended up at Doll's Kill. And it didn't really surprise me at all that more and more stories of unethical behavior from Doll's Kill were popping up across the internet. Honestly, to dig into all of them, I would have to do an entire episode just about Doll's Kill, and maybe I will for Patreon. But for now, we'll just say that Doll's Kill has done some pretty shady things over the years that seem to indicate that despite being a brand that claims to be for the misfits, it's only a certain kind of white, thin, cisgender, able-bodied misfit that they're interested in serving. Now, as I mentioned, the About page on the Dolls Kill website doesn't really say anything about its values or even the brand vision. But, and I did laugh about this, There is a separate page that can only be found by Googling Dolls Kill Values, and it essentially functions as a response to his biggest controversies over the past few years, like literally responding one by one to these things. That's as far as they've gone when it comes to talking about values. And I will tell you, based on what I had read about the initial controversies and then reading their response, The response is pretty tepid and possibly not very honest. Naturally, good on you. You know, that's the platform that rates brands. Uh, It gives the company its lowest rating. We avoid because there is nothing to know about this brand in terms of ethics, sustainability, or values. And I suspect it is because there are none. For a long time, This didn't really matter to customers who saw themselves finally being served by a brand 
just for them after years of being ignored, right? So it felt really good. Why why question it? But in 2020, bad behavior began to catch up with Dolls Kill as more and more stories began to surface about some of the bad things happening within the company, from the way it treated models to racist behavior to theft of art and designs. More shoppers began to move away, which is a risky situation for a brand that has a very niche customer base to begin with. And then this year, the whispers about resale began. Danielle and I touched on that in the last episode. These stories were popping up on Reddit and now really other platforms about Depop sellers having their accounts suspended after listing pre-owned Dolls Kill products. And the responses they are receiving from Depop are a little confusing. Sometimes customer service is saying that it is because they use Dolls Kill photos in the listing, but that's frequently not the case. And one customer service agent said that Dolls Kill was demanding that none of their product be listed on the platform. They were kind of flagging it as counterfeit to get it pulled. Seven months ago, that's how long this has been going on, one Redditor warned, quote, for anyone who isn't aware yet, Dolls Kill has made a hard stance against anyone selling or reselling any Dolls Kill items, including Widow, Current Mood, Club X, etc. New or used items doesn't matter. Their current stance is the price you pay only applies to a license to wear said items. They retain ownership. People who are trying to sell their Dolls Kill merchandise are currently being met with DMCA and counterfeit notices. This includes people who are using their own photos, not stock photos. They are also going after people who use the tags Dolls Kill, regardless if the said items have anything to do with Dolls Kill. Be advised before making any postings attempting to sell Dolls Kill items on Facebook Marketplace, Mercari, Poshmark, Depop, etc. Meanwhile, The Dolls Kill website promises that you can resell their stuff, saying, quote, you can resell Dolls Kill's products on secondary platforms. However, we ask that you respect copyright laws and our brand's intellectual property. This means that when reselling, please refrain from using copyrighted images or any other copyrighted content from our website as it infringes our intellectual property rights. Instead, use your own images and provide your own product descriptions. Reddit, and now YouTube, is filled with stories about listings being pulled as recently as last week and accounts being suspended on various platforms, despite not using any copyrighted content in their listing. They're not using Dolls Kill's photos. They're not using their product descriptions. What I think is happening here is that Dolls Kill doesn't want anyone using their, obviously their photos, their copy, etc. But they also don't want anyone using their style or brand names in listings, right? Like they don't want you to say Dolls Kill. They don't want you to say the name of any of their house brands. They don't want you using their product names, period, right? That would mean that it would be impossible to find any of their products on resale platforms. If you can't use their brand names or the name Dolls Kill or anything, how are you supposed to resell something? This would effectively squash any resale market for their stuff. So yeah, it's sketchy, right? It certainly doesn't show a lot of commitment to its customer. 
Multiple commenters on YouTube called it supervillain behavior, which feels appropriate, especially because the brand recently changed its return policy as well, and it no longer gives refunds on returns. Instead, customers can only receive store credit, which means if you buy something and it doesn't work, well, good luck reselling it to someone else to get your money back since we won't let you actually resell it. Super villain indeed, right? Of course, this anti-resale action, along with the shady return policy, has led many customers to, be- to believe, rightfully so, that perhaps the business is not doing well, which, to be fair, would not surprise me. There is something about Doll's Kill that reminds me way too much of Nasty Gal, and that is the low quality of the product. So something we found at Nasty Gal is that customers would be lured in by our awesome branding and our cool photography, but they would never shop a second time because they were so disappointed when they received their first order. Now imagine placing an order, being disappointed by the quality, and not even being able to return or resell what you bought. You will never come back. And when a brand already has a super niche customer, customers not returning will destroy the business over time, not even over a long period of time. It happens way faster than you think it's going to. That is exactly what happened at Nasty Gal. We spent money on marketing to lure new customers into our site. We offered them discount codes, et cetera, except back then we did give refunds on returns, which meant we lost even more money on each customer because these customers would come in, they would place an order, they would get the product, they would be wildly disappointed by the quality, the fit, everything about it. They would return most or all of it, and then they would never shop there again. My guess is that this new return policy at Dolls Kill and the anti-resale efforts are designed to stop the bleeding, right? Don't give people their money back, force them to shop from us and not secondhand. Do everything we can to hold on to every customer, except for, you know, good customer service policies, a good return policy, or good quality product, right? But everything else, everything's sketchy. As this anti-resale message spreads, and it has picked up a lot of momentum in the last month alone, I think we'll see more and more business troubles for Dolls Kill. It's not, it's not good. In fact, looking at the Glassdoor reviews, of course I did, right? It indicates a lot of trouble behind the scenes. It reminds me way too much of working at Nasty Gal. Here's some quotes from some of the reviews, which here's the thing. There are some somewhat positive reviews in 2022 and earlier. All of the reviews from this year are horrible, like horrendous nightmare, okay? Meetings with the CEO and founder are not often, if ever, productive, as inappropriate and unprofessional comments are often made with explosive outbursts that end with total chaos and disarray. Not only does this remind me of Nasty Gal, it reminds me of my most recent job. Uh, I feel this one so much. 
High-level business decisions are made by whoever is the loudest in the room. Rarely are data insights taken to drive business decisions. Constant reinventing of the wheel based on an executive's whims. Wow. Reminds me of Nasty Gal, but also reminds me of my last job, which maybe doesn't bode well for them. Execs make decisions based on nothing. They never listen to the facts or numbers presented by employees. As they lay off people, they just expect everyone to get scrappy and do like three jobs without promotion or more pay. People feel very disposable. Oftentimes, I was requested to make projects or presentations by upper management, and then they wouldn't show up to the meetings or do anything with the information. Oh, man. I I feel you on this one. This one really says it's very simply, most traumatizing fashion job ever. And the company is for profit and is just that and nothing else as it is tone deaf to any group, class, and issues unless it benefits the company. I'm just gonna go ahead and say here, if you know someone who's worked at Dolls Kill and they would like to come and talk to me for a clothes horse, send them my way. I I would love to talk to them about all of this stuff. Many of the reviews on Glassdoor mention layoffs as a result of poor business and that the missteps of the past few years, the cultural appropriation, the racism, et cetera, have had a very negative impact on the business. I wonder, as word spreads about the brand's attempt to squash resale of their product, how will that impact their business? Because it's a very very bad look. So that's Dolls Kill, seen as a big player in this new ultra fast fashion landscape. If you or someone you know has had a bad experience with Dolls Kill, whether it was as a customer, an employee, a model, or a reseller, I want to hear from you. I think Dolls Kill has been kind of flying below the radar because it gets drowned out by, you know, Shein, but they're up to just as much unsavory stuff, right? You can send me an email, a voice memo, or you can call the Clothes Horse Hotline. I totally want to hear from you. All the details are in the show notes. Let's take a moment to thank this week's episode sponsor, a brand that I love and feel very honored to have supporting the show. Seriously, what a pat on my back. Ose Duro is a sustainable fashion brand based in Ghana that uses handmade textile techniques to create contemporary garments. All products are hand-dyed and sewn in Ghana with small-scale artisans and manufacturers to support the local apparel industry. This is a really big deal to me because as we've all learned in our series with the Aura Foundation, fast fashion has had an extremely negative impact on the local textile industry in Ghana. So what Ose Duro is doing is really important to me. And their clothing is colorful with bold prints and it's size inclusive with many styles offered in sizes extra small to 4X. They are also conscious of waste and they're always developing more programs to tackle textile waste. Plus, they collaborate with artists, designers, and other brands to bring unique and limited edition pieces. Furthermore, this is very important to me too, this is a brand that cares for its workers, priding themselves on taking full-time pay for a four-day work week. The staff enjoys three weeks of annual paid leave, 90 days of full-pay maternity leave, two weeks of full-pay paternity leave, full health insurance coverage, pensions, and other statutory benefits. This is unheard of 
in the fashion industry. You can learn more and check out all of their incredibly unique and wearable pieces. They're all going to become the best things you've ever bought, and you're going to wear them the rest of your life. You can find them at oseduro.com. You can find them on Instagram at oseduro. And guess what? Oseduro has a special offer just for Close Horse listeners. Use promo code CLOSEHORSE20 for 20% off your purchase. Once again, that's CLOSEHORSE20 for 20% off your purchase. And I'll share that in the show notes. Thank you again for your support. Okay, let's jump into the second half of my conversation with Danielle. So let's talk a little bit about greenwashing because you had a lot of thoughts there. And I know... I mean, I'm glad that uh, Gen Z and just people in general are becoming more aware of greenwashing uh, and seeing it because it can be, at this point, very transparent. So where does Gen Z land on greenwashing? Like, how do they feel about it? Gen Z for greenwashing, it's similar to other generations, particularly millennials, where they're really confused and frustrated Mm -hmm. at this point. They do have this desire to shop more sustainably, to shop brands that are doing better or more mission-driven, but there's a lot of confusion, misinformation, and often disinformation. And this is where kind of the greenwashing as a form of psyop or psychological (laughs) operations comes in. And so a, a few months ago, I went down this rabbit hole, put on my political science major hat from back in college days. And did a lot of research around how greenwashing as a communication tactic can be considered a form of PSYOP. Mm-hmm. Because for PSYOP, for those who don't know, it's uh, abbreviation for psychological operations. It's a military term used when a agency, a group, a government is attempting to influence specific audiences through very deliberate dissemination of information. Mm-hmm. And greenwashing can be a way to distribute that disinformation because it often is misleading, confusing enough, it's obfuscating responsibility. And so you see this often in terms like vegan leather, <laughs> where it is a it's one of the biggest and best like marketing rebrandings of plastic oh. that I have ever seen yeah. in fashion yeah. and in the industry, where it's literally just polyurethane Mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. But a lot of consumers don't know that and they think, oh, vegan leather means maybe it's come from like mushroom or other plant-based leathers. Nope. That's a different thing usually. Mm -hmm. Or it's more sustainable or more durable because it's not using animal-based products. And, you know, that's a complicated question and answer. But it also comes into play when brands have certain programs that sound really good and sound more sustainable, but in reality are not. And so, you know, some recent research came out around fashion brands, take back programs or recycling programs where you can at H and M bring back in your old items. They say they recycle it, repurpose it, resell those items. And uh, the recent research found that, nope, in at least three quarters of cases, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Most of it just ends up in landfill or it goes to sub-Saharan Africa. 
and is polluting, clogging up those local areas. So it comes to this point of at least a third of consumers don't trust brands when they make claims around sustainability. It feels like greenwashing. They're confused. They're turned off by it. And unfortunately, a lot of them, the next step is, well, it's just too hard. So Mm -hmm. why should I even try? And they kind of throw up their hands and it's more of this nihilistic view. But I do think there is a better way forward and we can begin to see brands be held more accountable. So in the EU, there's upcoming legislation around greenwashing. There's um, certain states and certain areas. You have to have qualified science-based targets and explanations for your sustainability information. But it's still very technical and not consumer-friendly, which is where I think people will still just take the easy route Mm -hmm. and buy whatever they like, regardless of whether it's sustainable or not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the excuse I see coming up quite a bit is, well, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, so dot, 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 you know, I will buy this Shein haul. Um, And no one needs to defend buying clothes from Shein, right? You got to do what you got to do. But I do think that, like, often this sort of like, well, I'm just one person, I can't make a difference, Mm -hmm. or it's Amazon's fault, not mine, or, you know, all buying anything is wrong, so just buy whatever, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. these these are the kind of mental gymnastics. Like, listen, I've been in some really bad relationships where my friends were like, will you please never talk about this person again with us because we hate them. And you you insist on continuing to date them. And I'm kind of like, well, like you guys don't know them like I do, you know, like I know these things that make them okay. Of course, then, you know, I look back in retrospect and I'm like, gosh, that person was a real piece of work. You know, like my Mm poor friends for having to listen to me go on about that person for like a year. But I think it's the same sort of thing where you're like, well, the thing is like, I'm going to justify this to myself no matter what and move on. And it is even easier to do that when you can't trust a lot of the information that's being put out there. I mean, the H&M clothing collection thing is like just... I mean, really, really demoralizing and disappointing to so many people. That was huge. Mm. And still a lot of people don't know that. And there's still plenty of other brands out there who have, like, take-back programs that essentially function the same way, um, but, you know, give you a coupon to buy something new. Um, That's the real point of all of it, right? To get you to buy more stuff. And when you learn this stuff, you're like, well, who can I trust? I guess I'll trust no one. Right. Or I don't care anymore. Yeah. It's too hard. It's too consuming, time consuming. Yeah. I don't want to spend time doing that. I just want cute clothes. And that's where I think it's so interesting where when we have these cultural events like Taylor Swift's Eras Tour or the Barbie movie mm-hmm. and people talk about you don't need to buy a new thing for something you'll probably just wear once. And people go Ape shit. <laughs> yes. That they feel very attacked, <laughs> defensive. And I I hear the underlying point and I also the other side empathize that like people want to feel joy. They mm-hmm. want to feel something good and feel good, look good, 
have fun because the reality is like, it's scary out there and people are feeling the crushing weight, especially for Gen Z. They feel the weight of climate change and feel hopelessness or fear around that. A lot of instability, thinking about who they are, their careers, what they want to do in life. And those are big, heavy questions. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they feel addicted and guilty about fast fashion but don't necessarily know where else to go. And so I, I have a lot of empathy for younger consumers, people who are who love fashion, who want to participate, who mm-hmm. express themselves through clothes, but feel like it's like, oh, it's just so hard. I don't know where to go. And then there's a glimmer of hope, like, oh, a take back program. That sounds great. And then you find out later, nope. Betrayal. That was just... yeah. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) that was fake, fake news. And it gets very demoralizing very quickly. So I get why people resort to just kind of like, forget it, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Well, it gets so complicated too, especially with a sort of very black and white discourse that takes place on social media. Like there's not a lot of nuance because how much nuance can you capture in a stick and TikTok? or a, you know, a, a post yeah. on Instagram. And I have read threads on Reddit that almost made me want to cry <laughs> with despair uh, because it would be someone saying like, hey, so listen, like I don't want to buy fast fashion because I know all of these bad things about it and I want to do better. But someone told me that because I'm not poor, I shouldn't be shopping secondhand either. So now I don't want know what to do. Also, I don't want to buy clothes from Amazon because mm-hmm. I heard they're bad. So like, should I just never buy clothes again? I don't. Can someone please tell me what to do? You know, like literally like that kind of frustration. Yes. And I'm like, oh, man, I hear you because let's face it. We have a lot of conversation on social media about the ills of fast fashion. Uh, we also have a lot of misinformation about secondhand. And if you yes. if your heart is in the right place and you want to do the good the right thing which is every person you get this emotional fatigue where you're like I can't figure out what the right thing is based on the information I've been given and so now I'm just going to do whatever um and that frustrates me yes. too and that's where I think I think celebrating progress over perfection and realizing that we are individuals and we are part of the broader system, but we cannot change everything. We cannot control everything. And that these are incredibly complex. Like the global fashion industry, you know, is over a trillion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. It touches so many different aspects of our global economy, supply chains, labor, environment, uh, just business. And I think to to that extent, I understand the impulse to want to just tap out and say, I can't make a change. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's also the underlying impulse where Gen Z in particular, they do want to shop brands and showcase their identity, their affiliations through their consumption and what they support, where if we can just make it easier and make it more accessible, then I do think there will be a tidal wave Mm -hmm. and a shift to better options. The reality is, though, that fast fashion is way easier, way more compelling, Mm -hmm. and way more affordable. And in terms of those key metrics, if traditional fashion brands don't change how they're operating, and they're more kind of traditional 
buy six months in advance, these huge minimum order quantities and then sit on a load of inventory and then discount like that is long gone. That model does not work anymore, which is why we have a glut of overstock that then is discounted and discounted versus fast fashion brands like Shein. Mm -hmm. I think in theory, having a smarter, in some ways, more effective model by creating smaller minimums, like 100 items, and then scaling up or down based on demand so that there is technically, Mm -hmm. like big asterisk here, (laughs) technically less overstock and waste, Mm -hmm. even if, again, going back to greenwashing, the percentages and what they report of saying that they have less than 1% overstock rate compared to traditional fashion brands having 25 to 40% overstock as like a, you know, here's a feather in their cap is obfuscating the reality that they are producing hundreds of thousands of styles more and therefore creating millions of more units than their counterparts. Yep. So they might be producing over a hundred million net new items every year And this is data from spring of 2022. So it's even ramped up since then based on the last business of fashion report they did. Yeah, it's pretty astounding. I mean, because I do do think there is something there with this more on-demand, smaller quantity model because, you know, there is so much clothing that is being produced every year that's never going to be worn or even sold. There's an even greater portion that will be sold, but at deep discount, which like... Unfortunately, it is human nature that when you impulsively buy a bunch of stuff because it's on sale, which we all have been done at some point in our lives, uh, you don't value it as much. And so you don't really wear it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it also doesn't have much value on the resale market. So it's just not great Mm -hmm. because there's so much of it, right? And so little people who want it. When we, that kind of overproduction is a key component of the problem and the waste of the fast fashion industry. But at the same time, like just the steady flow of new styles every day from Shein is not a great example of it working in the right way, right? Right, right. In theory, 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 it should work if more brands shifted to an on-demand model, if they could create really just what was meeting demand. But we know that that's not happening and that demand is being artificially inflated and accelerated by extraordinary low prices that are not, I don't know how to say this, these prices are not normal. No. I think that's what people really need to understand. Yeah. Like these are not normal prices. And when you get to the Timos even, seeing the prices there, I don't understand how you could see that and think, oh, this is perfectly normal, nothing shady yeah, is going on. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, same thing, like some of the stuff you see on AliExpress, you're like, how? I don't understand. Uh, it's not good, you know, if it's that cheap. Something about it is not going to add up. I would say it's like too cheap to be true. Uh, <laughs> too cheap to be true, yes. right? <laughs> Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. 
maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a -a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. 
High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, well, let's let's talk about secondhand and teleport. So the first thing I want to ask you before you tell us more about teleport is like, what are your thoughts on the discourse online about, you know, like, oh, shopping secondhand, like the gentrification of thrifting and taking clothing from poor people and all of that? Like, what are what are your thoughts on that? I think everyone should thrift. Agreed. And obviously that sounds oversimplified in Mm -hmm. certain ways, but there are many ways to do that. Mm -hmm. You can buy secondhand online. You can buy them from traditional thrift stores, donation places, estate sales, swapping. I think buying secondhand should be most consumers' first choice because you are going to get more bang for your buck and you're also going to find more unique, more sustainable pieces. And so when... You ask people why they do want to shop secondhand, particularly Gen Z and millennials. It is pretty much in that order. First is lower prices. Then it's around finding cool, unique items. And then somewhere in third or fourth is around sustainability, at least in theory, Mm -hmm. that you feel like you are doing something better for the environment as well as for your wallet by buying secondhand. I think the discourse online around resellers, around gentrifying of thrift stores, I've been in this space long enough that I'm used to it coming up like every 12 to 18 months. Like there'll be some trigger online and it'll spark this new wave of conversations and madness Mm -hmm. and point counterpoints and dialogue. And I've kind of become immune to it at this point because it's like, (laughs) okay, this will pass and we'll move on to the next thing. Uh But it's been really interesting to see the latest wave over the last few months of this conversation because it's just so steeped in a lack of critical thinking. Oh, you read my mind. Yeah. Like for example, the landlord. uh, Oh my God. uh, Yeah. The landlord metaphor. (laughs) I just like, I can't with it. I'm like, no, these are two different things actually. (laughs) I, and a part of it is there's some quip 
it sounds catchy. Mm-hmm. It sounds enough like it could be true. Yeah. But what I have come to realize is most of this conversation is not rooted in malice or in jealousy even, which I do think that plays a role. Mm-hmm. A lot of it comes down to this concept of Hanlon's razor, which is like, don't ascribe to malice what is likely just the result of incompetence. 100%. (laughs) I say this all the time. If you feel that someone is overcharging, for example, for secondhand clothing, they probably just don't know any better. Like the people who really get themselves just so upset because someone is listing stuff at higher prices, I'm like, here's the thing. Either it's going to sell at that price, which means they pick the right price, or it's not, and they'll have to reduce the price or go out of business. That is, you know, that's how it works. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't get a stomach ache over it. Like it's going to be okay. And pricing is one of the most complicated aspects of any retail, any retail, but especially of resale, Mm -hmm. because in a single skew model where there's just one item, one of that unique thing, it really is variable depending on the condition, the quality, what era it came from, what brand it is. There's a lot of factors that play into pricing, Mm -hmm. which is why it's really complex and costly from a technology standpoint for a lot of these retail or resellers like the thread ups and the real reels Mm -hmm. of the world to have pricing that is fair and compelling and accurate, meaning that people will pay that Mm -hmm. amount for a secondhand item. And this is where the crunch comes in with fast fashion, because again, we've been habituated to expect incredibly low prices on clothes Mm -hmm. from a fast fashion point of view. And we expect secondhand items, quote, used items to be less money than new items, but it gets to a point. It's like, how low can you go? If a new item from Shein is $5 and you expect at least a 40% discount, 50% discount on a used item, but there's cost associated with running a store Mm -hmm. or having an online shop, where is their margin to support that? And that's where I think a lot of resale platforms, secondhand sellers get into a pickle Mm -hmm. because there's this warped consumer expectation and then frustration that comes out when they expect secondhand items to be like next to nothing, like dirt, dirt cheap. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important call out that, you know, for some of some people listening, this is very obvious, but I, you know, I've been a buyer now for a couple of decades and I did have one time have to listen to uh, my sister's boyfriend explain to me how pricing works, which was really rich since I've been doing this for a really long time. But he said to me like, hey, did you know that when you go to the store and buy something, the price you pay for it isn't what the store paid for it? And I was just like, yes, I <laughs> asked me what I do for a living, but he just kept going. And it was, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe how dumb he thinks I am. But, you know, the reality is that when you pay for, when you buy something, you're not just paying for the cost of that item. You're paying payment fees. You know, you're paying the platform fees. If you're buying it from a brand, you're paying for everyone who works there, you know, mm-hmm. their offices, 
uh, the shipping package, the packages, the free shipping, you name it. You're never just paying for the object. And I, unfortunately, I think fast fashion has like maybe made us feel that we are because the prices are so low. So when you think about like, even if you buy something from Shein, you're still paying for the shipping and the facilities site and the social media team and the product photography and all the people who work there and the people who made it, all that stuff. That's when you start to say like, okay, wait a minute. When you realize that this really doesn't add up at all, this doesn't make any sense at all. And I think you're, I, our whole sense of value and pricing has been broken for so long. I do feel that a lot of that confusion is sort of creating so much frustration on the secondhand market. And also this idea that if something is. is secondhand, it has like little to no value is another thing that we need to like break up with. Yes. And that it's so highly dependent and variable again, because every item is a unique mm-hmm. item. This is something I had to do a lot of education on with my leadership team at Amazon when I was launching our resale program, because Amazon and mostly every other retailer online or in physical stores, they operate in a multi skew mm-hmm. environment where each style has multiple sizes, multiple colors, and there's kind of what they call this parent to child relationship. Mm-hmm. There's a parent style and then there's variations, quote, children underneath that are typically all then organized on one single product detail page. And so if you go on Amazon or you go on Shein, you go on Gap, you'll see here's this sweatshirt. And then under that sweatshirt, there's sizes extra small up through extra, extra large. There's different colorways. That does not exist in resale. Every single resale site online that I have come across over the last 10 plus years has one item per product detail page. It is that item, that condition, that exact product photography for that exact item. And it that, I think a lot of people underestimate that the costs of doing that are somehow analogous to the cost of a retail mm-hmm. model. And it just does not scale in the same way, which is why it is super challenging for many resale sites to be mm-hmm, profitable mm-hmm. because they're operating in a totally different rhythm and product inventory logic, which then makes pricing, makes the operations, makes reverse logistics really complex because they're not interchangeable items. And so you think about when I was launching luxury resale, I had to do a lot of negotiating with the teams to say, we are not going to put 10 Chanel pre-loved and vintage medium flat bags on the same product (gasps) page. Each of these items are $6,000 to $10,000 pre-loved. And they are not going to be on the same page because each one of these has their own product photography. Mm -hmm. They have their own bullet points and description. They have their own certifications of authenticity. All of those unique details are tied to that specific item. Mm -hmm. We cannot just group them together and treat them as interchangeable because the consumer wants to know they're buying that specific item when they're evaluating a $6,000 purchase. (laughs) You're not just like, oh, I'm going to get this one versus that one. If you want the vintage one with gold-plated hardware, you want to know 100% accuracy you were getting that Absolutely. item versus a newer yeah, version. Yeah. But it's just a different mindset. And I, I think sometimes, especially younger consumers, 
who are just starting out in buying secondhand, thrifting online, or in real life, it takes time to understand that nuance and to also appreciate that there is a skill involved in thrifting and that it takes time and effort to to build up that eye Mm -hmm. to spot the quote good stuff at the store. And this is where I think the debate around resellers taking all the cute stuff, all the good stuff from the thrift store is so unhinged, (laughs) to be honest, because you can walk into pretty much any thrift store in the country and find something similar enough to what you're looking for. It might not be the exact same thing. It might not be the exact brand or style exactly that you're looking for, but that is not what thrifting is. Like you do not go in spear fishing as we discussed, (laughs) like you go in with a treasure hunting mindset Mm -hmm. and find something that aligns generally with your style, with your price point, with your sizing. It's a very different model than retail, which is why I think a lot of people get super frustrated and defensive Mm -hmm. because they expect it to be the same experience when it's like, it just cannot be. Yeah, absolutely. It's totally different. And you know, that makes it not for everyone because it's not like you go you go pull up to the Goodwill and you know exactly what you need and you walk in and it's there and then you leave, right? It's not like going to Target. And I think that for many right. people that it can be very frustrating. And I do think a lot of this rhetoric around oh, resellers are taking all the good stuff is that is based on frustration. I, I think that's where a lot mm-hmm. of that emerges. Maybe and a little a little hint of jealousy when you see someone reselling the good stuff. <laughs> I get it, but there are some the definition of what's good of good stuff is so personal that and there's such a variety of what people determine to be good uh, that there's always something for everyone in one way or another. But because thrifting is is so difficult sometimes and can be frustrating. Uh, it takes a lot of time sometimes to find what you perceive as the good stuff. And I think that's where that stuff begins. However, and you don't have to comment on this, but it's a conversation that's been happening a lot. You might have some thoughts on. More and more of us are feeling as if perhaps, and I, you know, in the past, I maybe it would have been like, oh, I don't know about that. But after all the like Johnny Depp, Amber Heard stuff and Johnny Depp's lawyers, you know, paying bots just to post shitty stuff and comment shitty stuff about Amber Heard, it made me start to think, okay, what if like fast fashion brands are actually doing something similar when it comes to posts about secondhand, like post, like starting these conversations on there, posting these comments in bad faith. And I had kind of thought about it a little bit. And then I was like, oh, I think you're just being too conspiracy minded. Uh, and then more and more people were messaging me to tell me they think that's what's happening. Unprovoked. Like I wasn't like, does anyone think this? Like they were just coming my way. Not that a lot of people repeating the same thing means it's true. Same thing with like all the other anti-resale, anti-secondhand stuff we read. Repeating it enough doesn't make it more true. But I do feel like it's a really odd coincidence that the same arguments show up in every conversation. So the conversation around whether bots are activating fast fashion conversations and debates online, I think is super interesting because I have noticed this on Twitter, on TikTok. Anytime you mention some of these brands, there are the same type of comments from what look like bot accounts, mm-hmm. like usually totally. 50 numbers. Yeah. And the same type of comments, conversations, and rebuttals. And what's been really interesting is there is a concept that 
cyber warfare users like the Russian government used of divide and rule Mm -hmm. where they might not be creating the initial trigger for conversation, but they will seed and amplify debates that are likely to divide and create divisions among groups of people in a certain country, a certain demographic, anything that where you can, if you can create that rift, it is easier than to rule and influence in that disintermediation. So it creates this dynamic where I have seen it ramped up and there have now been allegations from Xi'an to Timu and to Timu to Xi'an. They're now suing each other in courts across the U.S., for a lot of shady tactics Mm -hmm. that I think are really interesting and reminiscent of how other global groups, again, like the Russian government, actually use in terms of online disinformation campaigns. Mm -hmm. So there's something there, and I am waiting for some actual investigative journalist, not the one so-called who went on the Sheehan influencer trip, to actually do a report on... Whether this is happening or not, because I see it constantly on social media when these brands are mentioned. Yeah, it's just, and you're right. It is, it's like always these accounts that seem to be bots, or maybe they have a profile picture and a name that seems sort of normal. And then you go look at the profile and you're like, uh, I don't think this is a real person. Like, this seems like stock photography, you know? Um, And it just, it's, it's, they show up to every fight. And this is what happened in the 2016 and 2020 elections here in the United States. So this is not, this is not unheard of. Um, I think we're just starting to see it more as part of like a business strategy than we have in the past. But it's just, uh, it's like every time. Okay, so let's talk about teleport. Like, what... What makes Teleport different? What are your goals? Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I quit my job at Amazon Fashion about six months ago to join Teleport, which is an early stage startup building the next generation of fashion Mm -hmm. thrifting online. And I am obsessed with solving this problem where if you want to shop more sustainably, you're looking for style inspiration and you want to be a part of a community that really cares about those areas, mm-hmm. where do you go? And unfortunately, there are not a lot of places on the internet, especially if you're a teen, college age, girl, woman, interested in fashion, where it's positive, where it's safe, and where you can also easily buy and sell items from your closet. Mm-hmm. And so the mission of Teleport is to make thrifting online 10 times easier, 10 times more social, and 10 times more fun. Meaning that Thrifting online should be Mm -hmm. fun and it should be a way where you can connect with people who share your style, who share your interests, and where you actually feel like you know the people that you're buying and selling items from. Because my perspective being in this space for a while, like I've been on Poshmark since 2011, Mm -hmm. I think, and many other resale sites is it's very transactional. You buy and sell, you wash your hands of it. Whereas on Teleport, the whole differentiating point is you can share an outfit video and tag items directly in that video. So you can show how it's styled, how you've worn it in multiple ways, and you can see a record of all of your outfit diary for that specific item to give inspiration of mixing and matching. And it's a way to connect, do style challenges. We just did a barbecue challenge over the last week. Uh, and 
a place where you can feel like you can get inspiration and build your personal style in a safe, welcoming environment. Mm -hmm. Because I think for a lot of people, TikTok can be, and Instagram can be very overwhelming for teen girls in particular. It can be very toxic. And so I'm obsessed with making it a place where it's very positive and welcoming uh, and that people continue to come back to. I love that. I think that checks all the boxes. So where are you with Teleport? We just launched buying and selling. So a true thrifting experience a few months ago and have seen such positive growth and momentum from the community. And it's really been something important that we build with and for the community. So not kind of like a top down product development and tech roadmap, but really listening, engaging every single day with our community, with the users around how to improve it together. And so I've been so excited to hear people say that like they look forward to posting their outfits <laughs> every single day and that they've been able to really build more confidence in their personal style and figuring that out uh, as they're on that journey and then making it very easy and simple when they're ready to pass items along that no longer serve them doing that in an easy and responsible way by selling it. I, I love this because I do think, you know, for a long time, you are trying to figure out who you are and you shed a lot of identities along the way. And clothes are a part of that. When I when I get comments on Instagram with someone who's like, oh, I've been wearing the same clothes since I was in high school and I know that person's in their late 30s, I'm, I'm like, how? Like... <laughs> <laughs> like there have been 15 yes. versions of me since then, <laughs> you know, many bad haircuts, um, some self-inflicted. And uh, I, I think that making it easier and, you know, ultimately like less environmentally impactful for people to explore themselves is so important. Exactly. And so how do you make it a lot easier and also a lot more mm -hmm. fun? Because I think something that I've noticed being a thrifter pretty much my entire life is it is a fun thing to do with your friends or even just by yourself. And that thrill of the hunt, that treasure hunting experience and feel, I have not seen on any other resale site or platform. Mm -hmm. And I've tested over 50 app sites over the last decade. Like I've tried and tested pretty much them all. And I still use and love many of them but still felt like there was this gap where how do you build a more community first and video driven experience, knowing that that's just a richer way to show how thrifted items have potential beyond what you just see on the rack at the thrift store. And that's where I think a lot of people who are starting their secondhand journey get hung mm -hmm. up and why you see such frustration online against resellers, all of these <laughs> unhinged arguments <laughs> Because it does take some time and skill. And so if you can see someone who's essentially doing the heavy lifting and work for you and styling this thrifted item, showing how it fits, how it moves, how it can be mixed and matched, that is solving that kind of homework, emotional, intellectual homework you have to do and visualizing how this item would mm -hmm. look beyond just on a hanger. And that is a skill. Like it's not for everyone. I think everyone can learn it certainly, but there are some people who it's just not interesting, not an area that they want to invest in. And that is okay. 
So while I think thrifting, like shopping secondhand is for everyone, Mm -hmm. I don't expect everyone to spend hours at the thrift Mm -mm. store and enjoy doing that. And that's why I think teleport and our community can play a role in making it more accessible and more fun Mm -hmm. to thrift while not having to spend three hours at your thrift store. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many issues around accessibility to thrifting. And I think the easier we can make it, the more people will come on board. People of all ages, really. Yeah. Exactly. I do think there is something very impersonal about all the platforms that exist, the big ones. Like it, it is almost more like, oh, show up knowing what you want or leave disappointed, you know? <laughs> I And a lot of them, again, are search-driven. Yeah. So this is another differentiation for Teleport where because they're outfit videos – And you can scroll through a TikTok-like feed of how they're styled, how they put together multiple items in an outfit. It's very different than a search, sort, filter, save, add to cart, and then delete from Mm -hmm. cart experience. It's meant to more feel like what it's like being at the thrift store, where you never know what you're going to find. Like every swipe is a new outfit, new style. Someone then, if you like their style, you like their items, you can follow them, you can comment. But I mean, I'm so proud of how our community is so positive and hyping each other up. And they'll be like a goth girl hyping up a coquette soft girl. And I'm like, I don't know what any of these things mean, but go get them. Like, I love the vibe <laughs> that you all are creating here. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of encouraging people to experiment too with their style in a safe place when it can be nerve wracking to try something new and to wonder Are people going to look at me strange if I wear this type of outfit out and being able to track and cultivate your personal style while also shopping more sustainably is something I think we're really on to. Yeah, I think so too. That's really exciting. I'm excited to watch this grow because I think this is, this is what we need. This is the missing piece. Is that, is that connection that like, I don't know, it's, it's just like a live you know, it's not, it's alive. It definitely feels more like going thrifting with your yeah. friends than solitarily scrolling and sorting <laughs> endless grids yeah. of product, which, you know, is like a pastime of mine as well. Not to knock that, <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't scratch the same itch, especially when it comes to getting inspiration. And that's where I think there's still where most Gen Z, you know, over 90% of them say that they rely on TikTok, on Instagram for discovery. Mm -hmm. And then over 80% say that the discovery or inspiration phase of discovering new products, new brands is the best part of shopping. And I think that is what's missing a lot from shopping online and even retail stores now where everything feels so sterile and so homogenized. Mm -hmm. Versus the joy of thrifting is like, you truly never know what you're going to find. And sometimes you find the most random, most unique pieces. And that is the fun of it. So if we can bottle that up and recreate that in some way in an online format, then we've done our job. Yeah. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Do you have, and if you don't have them, it's fine, but do you have any final thoughts or parting words of wisdom you'd like to share with everyone? (laughs) I mean, you already shared a lot of wisdom with us. So if you ran out, it's okay. 
I would say if you are looking for a community to develop your personal style and to thrift cute items, then you should join Teleport. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to share more in show notes or however you like, Amanda. Uh, But welcome everyone to try it and to give feedback because, again, we're really building this with and for our community. We're not about to just try to recreate another resale app. There are plenty out there, but I think where we want to differentiate is building a community first Mm. place to thrift and get inspiration online. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I do think one of my favorite things about secondhand and vintage is the community aspect of it. Much less like there are communities for buying Glossier stuff, but this is cooler, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Yes, I think so. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. Well, thank you too, Amanda. This has been a pleasure. So fun to always talk about my deep special interest. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. 
Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Thanks to Danielle for spending so much time with me. We could have talked to her about three more hours, I think. Definitely have to have her back again. You should definitely check out Teleport, which you can download in the app store of your choice. It has awesome reviews. And I'm really excited to see what Secondhand 3.0 looks like with apps like Teleport leading the future and making it better and more accessible and more community-driven. Before I sign off for the week, because you know it's getting hot in here, literally, not figuratively, I just want to give you a few small updates. One, the new Clothes Horse website will be coming your way this week. In fact, Dustin is working on it 
as I record these words. Dustin and I have been working very hard to give it the new fresh look it deserves, and it's way more dazzling than its predecessor. I wanted it to be a better reflection of both me and the Close Horse community, and I'm so grateful to have a very talented designer, aka Dustin, working on it with me. So keep your eyes peeled for that coming this week. That means that for now at least, access to the transcript for this episode and any other episode will not be available at this exact moment as we work through transitioning all 172 episodes worth of show notes and transcripts over to the new platform. And it is literally a one-by-one situation. We also have to move over the closed source brand directory and all kinds of other content that was on the website. So please be patient with us. It will be worth the wait, I promise. The other thing I wanted to tell you is that you may, you may not have actually, but I'm just saying it, you may have noticed that many older episodes of the podcast are moving behind the Apple subscription paywall. I'm doing this because I'm looking for new ways to be paid for my work on this show without limiting access to information. I'm keeping the most important episodes free and accessible to everyone. That's a priority, right? Over time, more of the archives will be making this move. My hope also is that starting next week, subscribers will also receive access to the episode one day early, just a few dollars a month. Uh, You get to just support Close Horse and my work here. So please consider doing that if you use Apple Podcasts. All right. It is a tepid 108 degrees here in Austin. Seriously, I've been going outside every few hours to put out ice cubes and more water for all the creatures. And it's actually some really good viewing to see squirrels and birds drinking up a storm out there. Anyway, it's hot. It's getting hot in here. You know I record without the AC on, so I've got to get that turned back on right now. So thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating, perhaps, I don't know, a review on Apple Podcasts. I do I do love reading a good review on Apple Podcasts. It always makes me smile, smile like huge, just cheese out in a big way. So thank you for those of you who have written those. But most importantly, tell your friends. That's that's really the name of the game here, right? Getting more people to know the things that we know. So tell your friends to listen to Close Horse. If you'd like to support my work financially, of course, the Apple subscription is one way you can do it. You could also support my work on Patreon. There are other options in my profile on Instagram that you could check out. Um, and as always, I have to thank, of course, Not only does he make our music, not only does he provide audio support, not only is he literally building the website right now, he also lets me turn off the air conditioning on 108 degrees and doesn't complain. So thank you, Dustin, for all of your support. All right, everybody, I will see you all next week. Bye.